Chapter Six of Martin Eden by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six. A terrible restlessness that was akin to hunger afflicted Martin Eden. He was famished for a sight of the girl whose slender hands had gripped his life with a giant's grasp. He could not steel himself to call upon her. He was afraid that he might call too soon and be guilty of an awful breach of that awful thing called etiquette. He spent long hours in the Oakland and Berkeley libraries, and made out application blanks for membership for himself, his sisters Gertrude and Marion, and Jim, the latter's consent being obtained at the expense of several glasses of beer. With four cards permitting him to draw books, he burned the gas laid in the servant's room, and was charged fifty cents a week for it by Mr. Higginbotham. The many books he read but served to whet his unrest. Every page of every book was a peephole into the realm of knowledge. His hunger fed upon what he read and increased. Also he did not know where to begin, and continually suffered from lack of preparation. The commonest references, that he could see plainly every reader was expected to know, he did not know. And the same was true of the poetry he read, which maddened him with delight. He read more of Swinburne than was contained in the volume Ruth had lent him, and Dolores he understood thoroughly. But surely Ruth did not understand it, he concluded. How could she, living the refined life she did? Then he chanced upon Kipling's poems, and was swept away by the lilt and swing and glamour with which familiar things had been invested. He was amazed at the man's sympathy with life and at his incisive psychology. Psychology was a new word in Martin's vocabulary. He had bought a dictionary, which deed had decreased his supply of money, and brought nearer the day on which he must sail in search of more. Also it incensed Mr. Higginbotham, who would have preferred the money taking the form of board. He dared not go to Ruth's neighborhood in the daytime, but night found him lurking like a thief around the Morse home, stealing glimpses at the windows and loving the very walls that sheltered her. Several times he barely escaped being caught by her brothers, and once he trailed Mr. Morse downtown, and studied his face in the lighted streets, longing all the while for some quick danger of death to threaten, so that he might spring in and save her father. On another night his vigil was rewarded by a glimpse of Ruth through a second-story window. He saw only her head and shoulders and her arms raised as she fixed her hair before a mirror. It was only for a moment, but it was a long moment to him, during which his blood turned to wine and sang through his veins. Then she had pulled down the shade, but it was her room, he had learned that, and thereafter he strayed there often, hiding under a dark tree on the opposite side of the street and smoking countless cigarettes. One afternoon he saw her mother coming out of a bank, and received another proof of the enormous distance that separated Ruth from him. She was of the class that dealt with banks. He had never been inside a bank in his life, and he had an idea that such institutions were frequented only by the very rich and the very powerful. In one way he had undergone a moral revolution. Her cleanness and purity had reacted upon him and he felt in his being a crying need to be clean. He must be that if he were ever to be worthy of breathing the same air with her. 
he washed his teeth and scrubbed his hands with a kitchen scrub brush till he saw a nail brush in a drug store window and divined its use while purchasing it the clerk glanced at his nails suggested a nail file and so he became possessed of an additional toilet tool he ran across a book in the library on the care of the body and promptly developed a penchant for a cold-water bath every morning much to the amazement of jim and to the bewilderment of mr higginbotham who was not in sympathy with such high-fangled notions and who seriously debated whether or not he should charge martin extra for the water another stride was in the direction of creased trousers now that martin was aroused in such matters he swiftly noted the difference between the baggy knees of the trousers worn by the working class and the straight line from knee to foot of those worn by the men above the working class also he learned the reason why and invaded his sister's kitchen in search of irons and ironing board he had misadventures at first hopelessly burning one pair and buying another which expenditure again brought nearer the day on which he must put to sea but the reform went deeper than mere outward appearance he still smoked but he drank no more up to that time drinking had seemed to him the proper thing for men to do and he had prided himself on his strong head which enabled him to drink most men under the table whenever he encountered a chance shipmate and there were many in san francisco he treated them and was treated in turn as of old but he ordered for himself root beer or ginger ale and good-naturedly endured their chaffing and as they waxed maudlin he studied them watching the beast rise and master them and thanking god that he was no longer as they they had their limitations to forget and when they were drunk their dim stupid spirits were even as gods and each ruled in his heaven of intoxicated desire with martin the need for strong drink had vanished he was drunken in new and more profound ways with ruth who had fired him with love and with a glimpse of higher and eternal life with books that had set a myriad maggots of desire gnawing in his brain and with the sense of personal cleanliness he was achieving that gave him even more superb health than what he had enjoyed and that made his whole body sing with physical well-being one night he went to the theatre on the blind chance that he might see her there and from the second balcony he did see her he saw her come down the aisle with arthur and a strange young man with a football mop of hair and eyeglasses the sight of whom spurred him to instant apprehension and jealousy he saw her take her seat in the orchestra circle and little else than her did he see that night a pair of slender white shoulders and a mass of pale gold hair dim with distance but there were others who saw and now and again glancing at those about him he noted two young girls who looked back from the row in front a dozen seats along and who smiled at him with bold eyes he had always been easy-going it was not in his nature to give rebuff in the old days he would have smiled back and gone further and encouraged smiling but now it was different he did smile back then looked away and looked no more deliberately but several times forgetting the existence of the two girls his eyes caught their smiles he could not re-thumb himself in a day 
nor could he violate the intrinsic kindliness of his nature. So, at such moments, he smiled at the girls in warm human friendliness. It was nothing new to him. He knew they were reaching out their woman's hands to him. But it was different now. Far down there in the orchestra circle was the one woman in all the world so different, so terrifically different, from these two girls of his class, that he could feel for them only pity and sorrow. He had it in his heart to wish that they could possess, in some small measure, her goodness and glory. And not for the world could he hurt them because of their outreaching. He was not flattered by it. He even felt a slight shame at his lowliness that permitted it. He knew, did he belong in Ruth's class, that there would be no overtures from these girls, and with each glance of theirs he felt the fingers of his own class clutching at him to hold him down. He left his seat before the curtain went down on the last act, intent on seeing her as she passed out. There were always numbers of men who stood on the sidewalk outside, and he could pull his cap down over his eyes and screen himself behind someone's shoulder so that she should not see him. He emerged from the theater with the first of the crowd, but scarcely had he taken his position on the edge of the sidewalk when the two girls appeared. They were looking for him, he knew, and for the moment he could have cursed that in him which drew women. Their casual edging across the sidewalk to the curb, as they drew near, apprised him of discovery. They slowed down and were in the thick of the crowd as they came up with him. One of them brushed against him and apparently for the first time noticed him. She was a slender, dark girl with black, defiant eyes. But they smiled at him and he smiled back. Hello, he said. It was automatic. He had said it so often before, under similar circumstances of first meetings. Besides, he could do no less. There was the large tolerance and sympathy in his nature that would permit him to do no less. The black-eyed girl smiled gratification and greeting, and showed signs of stopping, while her companion, arm linked in arm, giggled and likewise showed signs of halting. He thought quickly. It would never do for her to come out and see him talking there with them. Quite naturally, as a matter of course, he swung in alongside the dark-eyed one and walked with her. There was no awkwardness on his part, no numb tongue. He was at home here, and he held his own royally in the badinage, bristling with slang and sharpness. That was always the preliminary to getting acquainted in these swift-moving affairs. At the corner where the main stream of people flowed onward, he started to edge out into the cross street, but the girl with the black eyes caught his arm, following him and dragging her companion after her as she cried, "'Hold on, Bill, what's your rush? You're not going to shake us so sudden as all that.' He halted with a laugh and turned, facing them. Across their shoulders he could see the moving throng passing under the street lamps. Where he stood it was not so light, and, unseen, he would be able to see her if she passed by. She would certainly pass by, for that way led home. "'What's her name?' he asked of the giggling girl, nodding at the dark-eyed one. "'You ask her,' was the convulsed response. "'Well, what is it?' he demanded, turning squarely on the girl in question. "'You ain't told me yours yet,' she retorted. "'You never asked it,' he smiled. "'Besides,' You guessed the first rattle. It's Bill, all right, all right. 
Ah, go along with you. She looked at him in the eyes, her own sharply passionate and inviting. What is it, honest? Again she looked. All the centuries of woman since sex began were eloquent in her eyes, and he measured her in a careless way and knew, bold now, that she would begin to retreat, coyly and delicately, as he pursued, ever ready to reverse the game should he turn faint-hearted. And, too, he was human, and could feel the draw of her, while his ego could not but appreciate the flattery of her kindness. Oh, he knew it all, and knew them well, from A to Z. Good, as goodness might be, measured in their particular class, hard-working for meagre wages and scorning the sale of self for easier ways, nervously desirous for some small pinch of happiness in the desert of existence, and facing a future that was a gamble between the ugliness of unending toil and the black pit of more terrible wretchedness, the way whereto being briefer, though better paid. "'Bill,' he answered, nodding his head, "'sure, Pete, Bill and no other.' "'No joshin,' she queried. "'It ain't Bill at all,' the other broke in. "'How do you know?' he demanded. "'You never laid eyes on me before.' "'No need to, to know you're lying,' was the retort. "'Straight, Bill, what is it?' the first girl asked. "'Bill'll do,' he confessed. She reached out to his arm and shook him playfully. "'I knew you was lying, but you look good to me just the same.' He captured the hand that invited, and felt on the palm familiar markings and distortions. "'When'd you chuck the cannery?' he asked. "'How'd you know?' and, "'My, ain't you a mind-reader?' the girls chorused. And while he exchanged the stupidities of stupid minds with them, before his inner sight towered the bookshelves of the library, filled with the wisdom of the ages, he smiled bitterly at the incongruity of it, and was assailed by doubts. But between inner vision and outward pleasantry he found time to watch the theatre crowd streaming by. And then he saw her, under the lights, between her brother and the strange young man with glasses, and his heart seemed to stand still. He had waited long for this moment. He had time to note the light, fluffy something that hid her queenly head, the tasteful lines of her rapt figure the gracefulness of her carriage, and of the hand that caught up her skirts. And then she was gone, and he was left staring at the two girls of the cannery, in their tawdry attempts at prettiness of dress, their tragic efforts to be clean and trim, the cheap cloth, the cheap ribbons, and the cheap rings on their fingers. He felt a tug at his arm, and heard a voice saying, "'Wake up, Bill. What's the matter with you?' "'What was you saying?' he asked. Oh, nothing, the dark girl answered with a toss of her head. I was only remarkin'. What? Well, I was whisperin' it'd be a good idea if you could dig up a gentleman friend for her, indicating her companion. And then we could go off and have an ice cream soda somewhere, or coffee, or anything. He was afflicted by a sudden spiritual nausea. The transition from Ruth to this had been too abrupt ranged side to side with the bold, defiant eyes of the girl before him, he saw Ruth's clear, luminous eyes, like a saint's, gazing at him out of unplumbed depths of purity. And somehow he felt within him a stir of power. He was better than this. 
Life meant more to him than it meant to these two girls, whose thoughts did not go beyond ice cream and a gentleman friend. He remembered that he had led always a secret life in his thoughts. These thoughts he had tried to share, but never had he found a woman capable of understanding, nor a man. He had tried at times, but had only puzzled his listeners. And as his thoughts had been beyond them, so, he argued now, he must be beyond them. He felt power move in him, and clenched his fists. If life meant more to him, then it was for him to demand more from life. But he could not demand it from such companionship as this. Those bold black eyes had nothing to offer. He knew the thoughts behind them, of ice cream and of something else. But those saints' eyes alongside, they offered all he knew and more than he could guess. They offered books and painting, beauty and repose, and all the fine elegance of higher existence. Behind those black eyes he knew every thought process. It was like clockwork. He could watch every wheel go round. Their bid was low pleasure, narrow as the grave, that palled, and the grave was at the end of it. But the bid of the other saint's eyes was mystery, and wonderful, unthinkable, and eternal life. He had caught glimpses of the soul in them, and glimpses of his own soul, too. "'There's only one thing wrong with the program,' he said aloud. "'I've got a date already.' The girl's eyes blazed with her disappointment. "'To sit up with a sick friend, I suppose,' she sneered. "'No, a real honest date with,' he faltered, "'with a girl.' "'You're not stringing me,' she asked earnestly. He looked her in the eyes and answered, "'It's straight, all right. Why can't we meet some other time? You ain't told me your name yet.' And where do you live? Lizzie, she replied, softening toward him, her hand pressing his arm while her body leaned against his. Lizzie Connolly, and I live at Fifth and Market. He talked on a few minutes before saying good night. He did not go home immediately, and under the tree where he kept his vigils, he looked up at a window and murmured, That date was with you, Ruth. I kept it for you. End of chapter six.